0: Well, this Christmas season, we are following the counsel and the advice of uh, Kevin DeYoung, who wrote an article uh, recently, a couple of years ago, uh, entitled Pastor Don't Get Cute This Christmas. And in the article, Kevin DeYoung basically encourages pastors not to seek some novelty slant on Christmas, but simply preach the same truths again. They're worthy to be heard. Again. And so that's really what we're seeking to do this Christmas season. I'm simply telling the story of Christmas from each of the Gospels. Two weeks ago, we looked at Christmas in Matthew. When we looked at Matthew chapter 1, and we saw that Christmas began with the genealogy, going from Abraham through David up to Jesus, the son of David. And we saw there the humanity of Jesus through the genealogy. The second half of Matthew chapter 1 then speaks about the, the virgin birth, God with us, as we find the deity of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Christmas in John, where we saw Jesus existing before time began, then stepping into time as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this morning, we are Christmas in Luke. And actually, we won't get to the Christmas moment until this evening as we look at Luke chapter 2. But this morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1. Now one of the things that struck me as we've looked at these these gospel accounts is how different they tell the story of Jesus, particularly how they they begin differently. It's not that they are a different story, but there are different ways to tell the, the same story of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love Matthew tells a story of Jesus with lots of Scripture references to the Old Testament, showing that, that Jesus fulfilled all these because he's writing to the Jews who trusted in the authority of Scripture. It's why it's important for Matthew to begin with the genealogy to show that Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Mark, on the other hand, tells a story quickly, getting to the point. In almost half the time of Matthew, a key word in the Gospel of Mark is immediately When it comes to the Christmas story, Mark even just ignores it altogether, just begins with the preaching of John the Baptist. Luke, the doctor, is a historian. He tells a story with historical accuracy, taking great pains to get the details correct. Luke's gospel is longer than all of the others because he wrote with a, a name to get it exactly right. John takes an altogether different approach from the first three. The first three Gospels are called synoptic Gospels, soon with optic to see. They see things sort of the same way, but John sees things totally differently, and, and he's strategic in his writing of the story. He's not trying to get every single fact about the life of Jesus, but he shares a few of his miracles that we might be convinced that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might have life in his name. And all that just to say there's no single way the Bible presents to tell the story of Jesus. You can start an eternity past like John did. You can start with the scriptures, as Matthew does. You can skip the birth of Jesus altogether, as Mark does, or you can begin as Luke does, telling of two miraculous births, the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. Now, of course, all the Gospels end in the same place with the unjust death of Jesus upon the cross, who died for our sins, that we might escape hell and judgment through faith in him, him taking the wrath of God upon himself rather than us taking upon ourselves. Well, this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 1, we're going to look all the way up to the events that led up to Mary giving birth, which we will look at tonight. we we'll look at the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem, where Mary gives birth to Jesus And lays him in a manger. And both this morning and evening, I'm not going to try to be cute. I'm simply going to read the story afresh and comment along the way. So if you haven't done so already, you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. I plan to simply read through the entire chapter, just commenting along the way as we go. It'll take some time. If you look in Luke chapter 1, we've got 80 verses. We'll just kind of move right along. And simply what I'm going to do is is just... Read it. I want you to hear it afresh, and we'll explain as we go the simple story of Christmas. First four verses of the chapter, really introduction to the book. Luke begins, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time in past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's one sentence. It's a very nicely crafted sentence, but all basically to say that, that what Luke is writing to Theophilus is true. And Theophilus, I, I want you to know the exact truth of what has been taught. And so please know, church family, I think a great application here, verses 1 through 4, is that what we read this morning really happened. In Luke's narrative, that's the point, is to convince us of the realities of Christmas. Right? This is no science fiction story of someone's imagination. That's the greatest story as it is. Could be. Could pass as that. No, this is... Genuine history. Well, after Luke's introduction, he gets right in the story of the birth of John the Baptist. More than a year before the birth of Jesus. And now by way of outline this morning, I simply want to trace out the major characters in this story. And so the first one we see is Zechariah. He's in verses 5 through 25. This is where Luke begins the Christmas story with an old priest named Zechariah. We're introduced to this priest in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Here we're told that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were righteous people. They walked blamelessly before the Lord. They they followed the the ways of the Old Testament. We're told here that Elizabeth was barren, that she was advanced in years, obviously beyond the age of childbearing. And that all sets up the surprise, which comes in verse 8. Now, while Zechariah was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom... Of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. On this occasion, Zechariah had been chosen by Lot to go in and perform the the priestly duties of entering the temple, right, beyond the Baal and, and burning incense on behalf of the people. He was a priest, right? That's what priests do. Priests go in and they beseech God on their behalf. Different by the way than pastors. Priests try to bring people to God. Pastors point people to God. And here was Zechariah in the temple, people outside praying, and Zechariah was expecting to be alone in that sacred place and lighting a, a match just like Darren wrote, lit here and, and lighting these, these candles, this incense to, to get it going on the altar of incense which stood before the Holy of Holies. He was in that place expecting himself to be all alone. And then he had a visitor, verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Now fear could have come from surprise, you know, when kids hide behind the door and surprise your parents to say, surprise, boo! You're like, whoa! And he wasn't expecting this angel. All of a sudden this angel appeared to him. But there was also probably another fear of an angel. Like you encounter an angel and typically fear comes upon you. Verse 13, the angel says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. (laughs) What a strange message the angel brought. Like, of two old people, long beyond the time of of child-rearing, to expect a child... And not just any child, but a great child. Look at how the angel continued on in verse 14 to describe this child. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him In the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the heart to the fathers, to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This child was to be great. This child was to be one to prepare the way for Messiah to come. Now, being a priest, Zechariah was steeped in the scriptures. And being a godly man, he knew them well and embraced them. And he knew of how Isaiah and how Malachi had prophesied of this forerunner to come. And he was ready to embrace this one who's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah according to the prophecies. He even to turn the hearts of the fathers towards their, their children. He, he knew all that and was ready to embrace that and was looking for that. But Zechariah was not ready to embrace the fact that the forerunner would come from he and Elizabeth being old and barren If they were, that's the question of verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Seemed like a legitimate question, but we find out that it lacked faith in verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. It seems a bit, in some ways, uh, right, uh, unfair. Right? Here's a legitimate question. Yet God calls us to believe. He won't tolerate our unbelief. Is evidence of this, that this would come to pass. Zechariah was struck, dumb, unable to speak until the day that John was born. Just say, you don't believe? Let, let me show you a sign. You'll believe. Well, verse 21 takes us now outside the temple. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. The, the people outside, right, they're praying for Zechariah like they, they did whenever the altar of incense was, was lit there. And they knew how long the other priests had taken in their, in their time, and they kind of calculated okay, he's going to come in there, he's going to start the match, he's going to light the, the incense, and maybe had some problems a little bit like we always have with the kids. Right? So that's what makes it great, Darren, right? We try, we get them lit, we try to. So maybe there was some problem, and, and they, were, they were a bit concerned with the delay. And then verse 22 tells what happened when Zechariah came out of the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So the fact he couldn't speak, he, he could still communicate. He just couldn't speak. But can you imagine the scene, right? The priest enters the temple, he's delayed and he comes out unable to speak. Zechariah at this point is playing charades. He's going He was probably better than I was. I don't know. (laughs) That was clear to you, right? (laughs) At some point, Zechariah retires at home. Verse 23. When his time of service had ended, he went to his home. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth indeed conceived. Miracle of miracles. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth was an old woman, barren. reproach was upon her. You just simply read, read the Proverbs and read how difficult it is for barren women. She was blessed with a child in her own age, old age, and her reproach of being a barren woman was taken away. And then Luke shifts the scene to Mary, which is my second point here, we have, have Mary, verses 26 through 56. And here we begin the, the Christmas story. Mary too encountered an angel, and we're going to see that her encounter with an angel is much like Zechariah's encounter of an angel. It says in the sixth month, that is the sixth months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, this is the same angel who appeared to Zechariah in Jerusalem in the temple, now makes a trip and appears to Mary up in Galilee. We know this is the same angel because he introduced himself the same way with the same name. And he comes with news of another miraculous birth. This time the birth isn't foretold of an old woman. This time the birth is foretold of a virgin named Mary. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. This isn't the sort of greeting you receive every day. Of out in the field or in the kitchen or wherever she was doing her work, and and all of a sudden an angel appeared to her. And and she was troubled. Mary trying to bring it all in. what, What sort of greeting this is? An angelic being telling her greetings. And then verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's so similar to Gabriel's encounter with Zechariah. Right? There's a command not to be afraid, and then there's a, a blessing of good news. And then the good news is explained. Verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. There is the Christmas command, the Christmas promise. You'll bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we've we'll called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Think about how much is the same with the prophecy of Zechariah, uh, that a child would be born from an unlikely womb. This child would be great, and this child would fulfill the scriptures. And like Zechariah, Mary was steeped in the scriptures. We know that from verses 46 through 55, which we'll look at in a little bit, just how Scripture-saturated that passage is. And Mary knew the Scriptures. She knew of 2 Samuel 7 and the Messiah coming from the line of David to come and rule and reign forever. And like Zechariah, I believe Mary was open arms, like ready to embrace the Messiah who would come. Only she didn't quite understand the Messiah would come from her womb. And in verse 34, she explains it, sort of like comes out as she tries to process over these things. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's a totally reasonable objection. Virgins don't give birth. But the explanation then comes in verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And there's the explanation. How can I have a son? I'm a virgin. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and He's going to do His work, and it's going to be a miracle. Listen, Christmas is a miracle. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, Mary, and, 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 and bring life into your womb? And the child will be holy because it's born of the Holy Spirit. The child's going to be called the Son of God. It's the wonder of Christmas that God would come as a baby in a virgin's womb. At this point, Gabriel then told Mary of the other miracle that took place in Elizabeth. So this isn't the first time. Verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 37 is the key to the Christmas story. Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. It's not impossible for God to bring forth a baby from an old womb. It's not impossible for God to bring forth a baby from a virgin womb. And any doubts that people have to understand the historical truthfulness of these events are really reflections of, Of a lack of faith in the power of God. I love Mary's response in verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. How different Mary's response was from Zechariah. She believed Gabriel. She resigned herself. Basically, God's call upon her life. Let it be to me according to your word. Okay? That's what you've called me? I will take it. And then we see the road trip, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Gabriel told Mary about Elizabeth and this encounter, and so she she makes haste, and she goes there quickly. And then these two miracle babies have their first encounter. John, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, since the arrival of Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, and John leaped in her womb. Now by this time, six months, you can feel the baby moving and perhaps kicking, but somehow this kick was different. This was more of a, a leap than a, a mere kick, right? Certainly this, right, ties us back to the promise of verse 15 that this, this baby would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from... His mother's womb, here it is, right? Filled the Spirit, leaping, a discerning somehow the, the coming of Jesus. And Elizabeth then instantly recognized the significance of this occasion by extending a blessing to Mary and a blessing to Jesus. Verse 41, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Indeed, there's a sense where Mary is blessed among all women, for she experienced something that no other woman on all the planet has ever or ever will experience, giving birth to God. Indeed, Jesus was blessed of God. You simply need to read the rest of the Gospel of Luke to see God's hand of blessing upon his life. And then in verse 43, Elizabeth continued in amazement at the working of God. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth was presumably somewhere around the Judean area, somewhere around Jerusalem. And Mary had come from Nazareth to to visit her. And Elizabeth here, this baby in Mary's womb. Elizabeth here, right, seeing the the baby in Mary's womb potentially as the, the Messiah. She recognized that. But even more than that, she recognized... This, this baby that was just conceived, perhaps, as not only a, a baby, but as God in the flesh calling this baby, my Lord. Why is it granted to me the mother of my Lord should come to me? It's the reality of Christmas, that, that the Lord of glory came in to dwell with us as a baby. God became flesh to dwell among us, and that's what Elizabeth recognizes. This is the sovereign Lord who's come into your womb. And verse 44, she explains and gives yet another blessing to Mary. It says, verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And indeed, Mary was a blessed woman, that the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures of the coming Messiah would come through her womb, that she would have the privilege of, of living with the Son of God in her own house, talking with him, learning from him. What a blessed thing it is that she would bless because she believed that there would be a fulfillment. Yes, she, she accepted and believed, where Zechariah doubted. And, and what comes next is, a, is a, one of the most beautiful prayers in all the Bible. The prayer is so significant that it has a name. The section has been called the Magnificat. Coming from verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, it magnificat, it makes God magnificent, if you will, just the word from the Latin, magnificat, and Mary begins with praise to God. Here's the first theme of her her, uh, psalm here, if you will, her praise. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is Hebrew poetry at its finest, not based on rhyme and meter, but upon parallelism. Hebrew poetry says one thing in one line, and then it says the same thing, maybe in a little different way, that contrasts it. They're oftentimes similes and, 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 and same words, meaning the same thing. What are the same, same thing words? What are they called? Synonyms. All right, there you go. Synonyms, different ways, filling out the picture, if you will. And that's what Mary's doing. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. Sometimes a difference in the line adds a little nuance to the line, which maybe is is an emphasis. And the the difference between these two lines is in that last word, my Savior. I have to make a subtle point here. In light of the teaching of the Catholic Church, which is dead wrong and anti-scriptural, Mary needed a Savior, just like us. She was a daughter of Adam and in need of Jesus to save her from her sin. That's why she called God my Savior, the one who's come. And I love the fact that Mary's Savior was in her womb. That song, Mary, Did You Know? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? The child who you delivered will soon deliver you. What a great picture. Play on words. You deliver this child and he's going to save you. He's going to deliver you from your sins. And she knew this baby was her savior. And she trans- trans- transfers from uh, praise to humility. Transitions there. Verse 48. For God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me Blessed. For he was mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary knew her position before the Lord. She was a servant. And truly, that's one of the reasons why God chose Mary, of all the women in the world, to be an earthly mother. She was a servant. And and truth be told, this is what God is looking for in us. He's looking for us in humility to be servants. It's not so much great gifts that God looks for. As he looks for those who have great hearts of submission to him. And Mary knew that. Mary knew God's blessing upon her at this moment. That that God would do these great and mighty things for her to bring the Messiah into the world through her. Mary knew that all generations of the world would call her blessed. In fact, think about that. All across the world, today, tonight, tomorrow morning, people are remembering Mary. Mary. People are remembering the virgin birth. We reflect on how blessed she is. And now, this wasn't a proud, arrogant statement of Mary. It was reality. It was really doing, it was the Lord's doing. And she basically said, I'm just your servant, and you've done this for me. She's humble. After giving praise to God, after recognizing her low estate, Mary then transitions to talk about the mercy of the Lord, which is the reality of what she received from the Lord. Verse 50. Mercy is mentioned in verse 50, mercy is mentioned in verse 54, and between is all expressions of God's mercy towards people. Mercy towards those who fear him in verse 50, and mercy towards Israel in verse 54. And and God's mercy, right, is, is to those who fear him, to those who are in a covenant relationship with him. To them he shows kindness. Verse 52 says, He lifts the humble. Verse 53 says, He feeds the hungry. Verse 54 says, he helps his people. His mercy is not against the proud or arrogant. To those, verse 51, he scatters. To those, he's brought down, verse 52. To those, verse 53, he is sent away empty. This is how it works, right? When you're, when you're humbly depending upon the Lord, when you're fearing the Lord, when you're covenant relationship with him, God will show you mercy. But if you're not, if you're not trusting with him, he will scatter you. He'll, he'll take away your riches. He'll bring you down. It's the promise of what Mary says. And Mary basically says, I, I'm one of those of low estates. I'm one who fears you. And in fact, I th- if you looked at Mary, you probably would not be impressed. She would be like, Mary the librarian, maybe. <laughs> just, just one who, who wasn't the life of the party, probably reserved, Loved reading her Bible. Not the biggest personality, but she loved people, and she served people. Now, that can go along with a, a librarian for sure. But God chose her, and as Elizabeth said, to be the mother of my Lord. Now, the like Catholic Church speaks about the Mary being the mother of God. It's not, it's not that way. It just, it just means that, that, that God, Jesus, came through her. Well, surely Mary's time with Elizabeth was a special time. Can you imagine that time that they had together? They both thought of the special babies in their wombs. I picture uh, sisters who are pregnant together and the special bond that would form there as they, they gathered together. These are like relatives their sisters who are together. And it lasted three months. As verse 56, verse 56 says, Mary remained there about three months and returned to her home. Whether she saw the birth of John the Baptist or not, we don't know, but it's about about that time she came home. And now in verse 57, we've got our last point, um, going from 57 through verse 80. I'm calling section John, not not so much because John is um, doing a lot in these verses. In fact, as a baby, he's not doing anything at all. Um, But more because the focus is upon John. Here we read of the birth of John, and then Zechariah gives a prophecy about John so it's kind of about John. His birth comes in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. A lot packed into that statement. Mothers, you know, the lot's packed into that statement. This is the son that was promised to Zechariah. This is the, the promised forerunner to the Messiah, who's born here. Verse 58. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Right? News spread like news of a newborn always spreads. There was happiness and joy, rejoicing in God's mercy to Elizabeth, who who bore a child in, in God's old age. I mean, you just imagine the scuttlebutt around, oh, Elizabeth's pregnant? No, Elizabeth isn't pregnant. Yeah, she is. No, she's not. She's too old. No, she is. And then as she starts to show, and like the people all rejoicing, and then she carries it to term and actually gives birth to a live son. The rejoicing there would have been tremendous. And then according to Jewish tradition, the child be circumcised and named on the eighth day. That's what we read about in verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, which was the Jewish custom. But his mother answered, no, 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 he should be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And so at this point, I remember John is just speaking sign language with them. He can't, Zechariah is speaking sign language, he can't talk. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. I believe this act of naming this child John was a demonstration of the faith of Zechariah and Elizabeth. You can see the resistance from the people then and and now. We name people for relatives. But there, Zechariah and Elizabeth had no relative named John. But they insisted. And Gabriel's word from verse 20 was fulfilled. They'd be unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because he did not believe. And he believed. His name is John. I believe what you said, Gabriel. And verse 64 says, Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosened. And he spoke, blessing God. After being unable to speak for nine months, I'm sure Zechariah had a few words stored up to say. These weren't words of complaint or disappointment. They were words of praise. Praise. There are blessings directed towards God. We, we see the response of the people in verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors, like seeing him all of a sudden now speak, and and certainly, right, things had, had gotten around and Zechariah had communicated about his time in the temple. He couldn't talk, means he, he couldn't communicate, it didn't mean that he couldn't communicate. He may have taken some time, he had to write a lot of things down, but he, he eventually, surely wrote it out, and it's the... The people knew that, verse 65, the fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Could this be the forerunner? Is this the one coming before the Messiah? And that buzz went out. And all who heard him laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is, is with him. These neighbors knew the extraordinary circumstance of this old woman. And then Zechariah did communicate just his experience with the angel and the reason why he was mute. And he communicated about how this angel appeared to him and how this angel told them that this child would be great and how this angel said that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and how he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah and how he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and how there would be revival in the land. And we could speak instantly after naming him John. like, Is it true? Is it true? Really think about it. The people marveled. As we read this Christmas story, I want you to catch the marveling of that. Now, we're at, a, some regard, disadvantage because we know the end of the story. Maybe that's an advantage for us. But as a disadvantage, we're trying to engage ourselves in there. Just the just anticipation of what would come forth. We know John the Baptist was great. We know that he preached to the crowds by the River Jordan. We know that he preached repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. We know that when the Pharisees came against him unrepentant, he says, "Oh, you brood of vipers, turn them away." But many people, like all Judea, came to him. He baptized many, and we know that he came to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, that Messiah would come in his dovetails. But for them, it was like all future. Could this really happen? Is it? Is it? No. All they could do is marvel and wait sad for me to think even maybe some of these neighbors who were waiting died because it wasn't for another 30 years that these things would see their complete fulfillment. But we've seen it fulfilled in Jesus. And then the final scene, chapter 1, is the prophecy of Zechariah. Verse 67 says this, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... This is what Scripture is, right? Men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. This is words from the Lord... Zechariah prophesies basically about two things. He prophesies about Jesus, and then he prophesies about John. You see the prophecy about Jesus beginning in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old. This is Messiah language. The Messiah would come and redeem and save. That the Messiah would be from the house of David. That the Messiah would come in accordance with the Old Testament prophecies. And what's amazing here is that Zechariah speaks as if his past tense. As if these things already happened. As if he sees no doubt that these things will occur. He has visited and redeemed his people. But Jesus hasn't even been born at this point such as how prophecy works, oftentimes looking past what is in the future. Isaiah 53, surely he has carried our sorrows, borne our iniquities, past tense. It doesn't say he will be this. It says that he was like this. All of us like sheep gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Past tense prophecy is how it works. And they did. Come true in the life of Jesus. Jesus was the visitation from God. He did redeem. He visited us by coming in the flesh. He redeemed us by dying on the cross for our sins. That's why the celebration of Christmas time is so great. Because Jesus came to bring us salvation. Zechariah continues in verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. God promised to Abraham that from his seed would be a great nation that he would bless. You remember that? Genesis chapter twelve. I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's promised to Abraham and to his descendants. Promise salvation from his enemies. By his mercy. Because they were the people of God. And our response comes in verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. This is the result of the Christmas season. This, this is the result of the Messiah coming. This is the result of Jesus. is he comes and saves us so that we serve the Lord without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him. All of our days. Is that where it finds you this holiday season? Serving the Lord without fear? There's many things to be fearful about. Future and health and finances, concerns, relationships, conflict, right? We serve the Lord without fear and holiness, right? Doing the right thing, serving the Lord just like Zechariah and Elizabeth did, trusting Him all of your days. One of the things I often pray for my kids is they would love and serve God with all their hearts for. All their lives, right? How many times have you hear me say that? A lot. A lot. <laughs> all their hearts, all their lives. It's kind of how I pray. I prayed that for many of you as well. It's where Zechariah's prophecy leads us this Christmas season to a righteous and holy life. It's where Jesus leads us. And then Zechariah finishes his prophecy by talking about his own child, John. So he comes now to John, verse 76. You can see, and you, child, this one right here. Speaking to him as if he understood. He didn't understand. He was still a baby. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And this came true in John's life. He was called a prophet, and he went before the Lord to prepare his way. You can turn over to Luke chapter 3 and verse 4. John the Baptist was the one written in the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John prepared the way for the Lord by calling Israel to repentance. As it's often the case when God moves in the, the lives of his people, right? There's this connection. People turn from their sin and they were following after John and they were, were being baptized by him. And John said, yes, you're being baptized, that's wonderful, a symbol of your, your forgiveness of sins. But look to him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John was a preacher and he was there and he was prophet the most high who prepared the ways of the Lord and in preparing the way right is to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins telling them and directing them about where and how their sins can be forgiven it all comes about because the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And to guide our feet into the path of peace. It's the tender mercy of God that gave us John the Baptist. It's the tender mercy of God that gave us Jesus. The sunrise imagery comes from Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. This giving light to those who sit in darkness is Isaiah chapter 9. Like scripture saturated seeing the fulfillment of the Messiah in John preparing the way. It's the Christmas story. And then we read just quickly of John in verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel, which comes then in chapter 3, which you can read about. But the stage is set for the birth of Christ as it comes in Luke chapter 2, which we'll celebrate this evening at 4 p.m. We'll see you tonight. Let's pray. Lord, I, I have not tried to be cute this morning at all. Just try to take your word and, and talk our way through it and to explain these things and bring out observations from your word. I pray it would stir us afresh, seeing the first of two miraculous births here, the, the birth of John the Baptist and the foretelling of the birth of Jesus. Just would pray that even us who've heard this story many, many times would marvel again, marvel afresh at the glories of the, the coming of Jesus this Christmas season. May it cause us, O oh Lord, even to anticipate His second coming when He comes, the, the King of glory entering into the gates. So we've been studying Revelation. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, give us a heart this Advent season to see Your first coming as a prelude to Your second coming, which would be so different. The, the Lamb will come like a lion and will save us and rescue us literally from our enemies. We look forward to that day, O oh God. And would pray that you would keep us, and that tonight would be a time of, of great worship to you. Celebration, wonder and awe so we consider the actual birth of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.